Hello, my friends. Yes, you're back. I'm back. We're back together. We've come together, everyone, all of us, for another episode of Waterproof Records. And while last episode, I had a lovely guest in the uh, studio with me, today it's just you and me, just intimate, one-on-one to talk about another one of those groundbreaking albums. Um, Today, it's time to talk about Pearl Jam's 10. Yes. So, right out of the gate, we know we want to say this. Today's episode is recorded at Believe Limited in Silver Lake, California. Believe specializes in entertainment that affects change and is responsible for various forms of content, including feature films, documentaries, and podcasts, much like this one. You can check out their work at BelieveLTD.com. Believe Limited. We do special things. There we go. All right. Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. Yes, these are some of these heavy hitter early 90s albums, grunge, the the changing. We've we've done them. We've done some of the biggest ones. And still many more to come, but you know, like I mentioned in an episode a few back, I said let's let's tackle the monsters, the behemoths. There was a meme that was going around a little while ago that showed like the all these uh, albums released within four months of each other in 1991, and it was like Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Pearl Jam's Ten, Nirvana's Nevermind, uh, Metallica's The Black Album, and you really do you sit back and you go, holy shit balls, what a collection of music to come out at one point in time, and. Looking back, I don't think you realized it. You just thought like, oh, this is life. Like great, amazing um, albums are coming out left and right. But it was one heck of a year. And then I I think there was a lot of years like that, like 92, 93, 94, 95. I feel like that whole period of time, there was just really exciting stuff coming and some terrible stuff too. Let's not be, let's not say that everything was great during that time. There was some... There was some mediocre and stuff that I didn't like, but I am way less of a music snob. Back then, I was definitely a little bit more of a snob, um, and I've mentioned that before. I've, I've said that in my TikTok videos, that with age, you just learn to be like, hey, man, whatever floats your boat. You know, one of my favorite expressions is, I'm not going to yuck someone's yum. I love that, you know? Like, if somebody really digs something, I'm not going to I'm not gonna poo-poo it. But Pearl Jam was a big part of the shift in music, and they're very different um, than bands like Nirvana and Alice in Chains. But there's definitely a connection to the Seattle scene here with like Soundgarden and whatnot, and we're going to walk a little bit through that, just to how close these bands were at the time and and the intersections between. Um, I, I think the first time I heard Pearl Jam was definitely Alive. I'm pretty sure I saw the the video, and one of my earlier TikToks was about how that really was this like anthem of feeling good and alive, and and you see the video and people are moshing and and crowd surfing, and you see this black and white footage of this band. And the thing about Pearl Jam is they're definitely grunge, but they had like a classic rock vibe. You know what I mean? They were they were channeling some of that classic rock and roll mixed in with this this sound and this 
energy that was talking about really heavy subject material. But Alive was the first song that I remember hearing, and I really dug it. I loved the guitar playing and the sound. And Vetter, you know, back then, Eddie Vetter, the front man of Pearl Jam, got a lot of teasing because it was that that sound that was coming out. And it seemed like once he did that, there was like five other bands, more than that, that were trying to do the quote-unquote Vetter. I remember right when Stone Temple Pilots came out, everybody was always like, oh, this guy's just trying to copy Eddie Vedder. But, you know, in a lot of ways, um, Scott Weiland totally had his own vocal style. It just happened to be similar, I think, on, on those first songs. But Pearl Jam's 10 comes out, and the funny thing about this song, Alive, is it's not even a, it's not an uplifting song at all. And, I, you know, I, as somebody I've talked about this show before, it is... Uh, one of those examples of things where I go, I don't pay attention to lyrics. I can listen to a song forever. My TikTok that I made about a live, I even compared it to the feeling of what a dog feels like when they stick their head out a window, you know, during that chorus of, that's like, you feel like you're just like arms out embracing life and just, you know, running on a beach or something. But it's a bummer song and kind of a twisted tale. And let's dig into that as to, to let's start with Alive and kind of how Eddie Vedder came to be in the band Pearl Jam. 10 released in um, August on August 27th, 1991. That's when the album debuted. And the journey of putting this band together, it's essentially been the same four guys since the beginning, except for a little rotating out of the drummer. Oh, I don't know, maybe five times. So they've definitely had their slew of drummers, and we'll get into that. But how this band comes together is a pretty interesting story. Um, Stone Gossard and Jeff Emmett, guitar player, bass player. These guys are in a band called Green River, which is really given a lot of credit for creating the whole grunge scene in the 1980s. Like That's their claim to fame. And the, the members of this band are Mark Arm, Steve Turner, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, and they are uh, the other two guys, Mark Arm and Steve Turner. They end up splitting off when Green River breaks up, and they start Mud Honey, very famous grunge band from the from the time period. So those guys go do Mud Honey, and Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard are kind of left to go do their own thing, and they they basically parted ways because Green River, their sounds are just not the same. You can tell that that. The guys who go on to be in Pearl Jam just didn't want to go the mud honey way. So, so these two guys, Stone and Jeff, are trying to start figuring out other bands, and they get this band together called Mother Love Bone. And Mother Love Bone is a huge, um, big, big uh, Seattle band. Like people are really excited about it because their frontman Andrew Wood is from this band called Malfunction. They get together. They're getting a lot of attention. They're touring. The whole city is really excited about this band. And tragically, Andrew Wood overdoses um, on heroin in 1990, and he, he, he dies right before their album, Apple, is supposed to debut. So this is really, you know, I've, I actually talked a little bit about this on the single soundtrack episode just because this was a big part. Um, if you're talking about Pearl Jam, Temple of the Dog, um, this era, this is a big part of the story. So you have Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard trying to figure things out, and the death of Andrew Wood just devastates them both. They're just kind of 
losing their way and feeling a little bit aimless. And it takes a while for them to pick up the pieces and start playing again. Um, I can't remember which one of them, one of them just kind of like played a lot more. I think Jeff Ament just continued to play and make art and stone just kind of shut down completely. But then over time they're getting back together and they, they, you know, meet up with Mike McCready and they start playing together. And this band is starting to form and at this time, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do and which direction they're going to go. And so they're really looking for a lead singer, and they're looking for a drummer, obviously. And so at the time, there's this tape of demo songs that, that were called the Stone Gossard Demos 91. And this tape, they give it to this guy named Jack Irons. Jack Irons is one of the founding drummers of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he would later play with Pearl Jam for a, a short time. But they give it to him kind of, one, being like, you interested in playing in our band as a drummer? And do you know any singers? And Jack declines the offer for playing drums with the band. And um, at this time, Matt Cameron is playing with them, playing with, uh, with the Pearl Jam guys. But he's also in Soundgarden at the same time. So he's like playing with them, but he's also like, I can't necessarily split in my Soundgarden dudes. So this, this is like the Seattle family, right? Try not to get too convoluted here. So Jack Irons has this demo tape. He gets it to a buddy, his basketball playing buddy from San Diego, a guy named Eddie Vedder. And Eddie Vedder was in a band in San Diego and was had a reputation for being this guy who just never sleeps and just dedicated to working, working, um, you know, day job while trying to pursue a songwriting career and a music career and just worked, 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 worked really hard trying to get after things. And I remember reading somewhere they said that that uh, Eddie Vedder brought a Midwest work ethic to the West Coast. And I actually really think that that's true. I don't mean to be critical of people on the West Coast, but I remember when I first moved here, I grew up in Tulsa, then lived in Illinois. And there's a work ethic in other parts of the country where it's like, you got to work hard. That's just a part of the, that's just like in the soil. You, you are raised with that, and it can be to an unhealthy level. I Yes, I, I think that, that they could chill out sometimes because they're always like, work, work, work. You work till you die. But that ethic was put in him, and I remember when I first moved to L.A., I was blown away by how many people I would meet. They were like, yeah, I don't really know um, what I'm going to do for a job, or I don't have a job right now. I'm just kind of floating and figuring stuff out, and I just – I always thought that was really interesting, such a different mentality on the West Coast, especially the Los Angeles area. And so it's said that Eddie Vedder had this work ethic of a Midwesterner. And uh, yeah, he, he brought that with him and he was really committed to it. So he hears the Stone Gossard tape and he immediately, he's he's going surfing one morning and he gets inspired by these lyrics that pop into his head. And he didn't know his biological father as a boy, and he kind of came up with something that that came from a real place of feeling like that um, <clears throat> kind of aimless, I don't know where I come from, I don't have a relationship with my father, and what does that mean when I grew up with my relationship with my mother? He had the true aspects of it. But then he had a little bit more of a story that was like, well, this could be a tale of something. And he goes and he records his voice over a series of songs that are kind of like a mini rock opera. It was a trilogy. Okay. So he hears this, the, the guitar parts for a live. And at the time that song in its, without its lyrics or voice on it was called dollar short, I believe. 
So he he writes this song about a guy whose father dies and he grows up and his mother is now after the loss of her husband sees how much her son looks like her husband and now sexually desires him and how that would fuck you up as a teenager if all of a sudden your mom was like putting the moves on you because you resembled her deceased love you know the person she fell madly in love with is gone and here you are you look exactly like him and and what that would do to you psychologically so alive is about that kind of this feeling of what this character is going through that was pulled from Vetter's life and he writes that song then he writes once the, the lyrics for once and that's the second part of the trilogy and that second part is it drives that person to become a serial killer and that's the second part then the third part was a song called footsteps and the guitar part of footsteps this is all so much stuff i know i i feel like i'm throwing a ton at you guys but the song footsteps was not on 10 and the guitar part of footsteps is the same as temple of the dogs times of trouble because it was all written by stone gossard so footsteps is the same guitar part but this is eddie vetter's take on it and the, it's the end of the trilogy and in that trilogy the end of the song is him being put to death you know being being imprisoned and, and, and killed for his crimes. And he records these three songs. He calls them Mama Son, as in like Mama Son. And he sends it up to Stone and Jeff, and they listen, and they're like, holy shit, this, this is incredible. We got to get this guy up here immediately. So they fly him up there, and within like a week, he's in the band. He is the lead singer of Pearl Jam, which at the time – another funny story, is going by the name Mookie Blaylock. They're not Pearl Jam yet. They're called Mookie Blaylock. And Mookie Blaylock is, was a NBA basketball player for the New Jersey Nets. And there was a lot of kind of uh, uh, myths uh, around this, this whole thing that was like, oh, he was their favorite player. And then they had to change it because Mookie got pissed and there was a lawsuit and they had to change it and it was all this drama. And the truth would come out many, many years later, but that it was a very simple thing. Here they've got this demo tape that they're going to you know, throw some songs on so that they can get on tour and play some live shows. And they don't have a name of the band. They don't have anything. And when they were recording stuff, they would go across the street and buy basketball cards. And they go across the street and they pull out this basketball card and it says Mookie Blaylock on it. They throw it on top of the demo tape and they just say, yeah, we're Mookie Blaylock. It was really not more thought out than that. I, I believe that Jeff Ament had some familiarity with him as a basketball player because Jeff played himself. Um, but it wasn't like they'd all come to this big unanimous decision that they would be called Mookie Blaylock. So they slap that name on the tape and they go on tour and open for Alice in Chains as Mookie Blaylock for like 10 shows. And then it's, you know, then they realize they probably need to come up with something better than that. And Mookie was totally fine with it. You know, it wasn't, he was, he was kind of flattered that they would name their, their band after him. But I think they all realized they got to come up with something a little bit more legitimate. And then here we get to the name of the band, a name that went over my head for like, I don't know, maybe five years of knowing about Pearl Jam and never really putting two things together. Um, 
there's a lot of stories that surrounded the uh, the creation of the name of Pearl Jam. But you adults listening can probably very quickly put together what would have the consistency of jam and be the color of pearl. You can put that together. That's more than likely what it is. But over the decades that that band has been asked in interviews, it's funny because I made a joke about Pearl Jam and what does the name mean in my TikTok video. And you could see all these comments coming in and being like, it's his great grandmother and it's jam and it's this. And, you know, and then the other people saying, well, it's clearly, you know what we're talking about. We're talking about splooge. There were all these different takes and what people thought it was. But I did the best research that I could to give you guys what the story was. So in the early days of the band, they're getting asked in interviews, what's the band mean? And I I read a transcript of the interview. And you can see them laughing as they're explaining to the interviewer. And so you very quickly get an idea that they're just making up this story. They're making it up because they don't want to just flat out say what the band is, why, why it has the name. You can see in the conversation, Eddie Vedder's like, oh, I have a great-grandmother named Pearl, which is true. He does have a great-grandmother named Pearl. And she married a, a Native American chief, and she would make this jam and put peyote in it, and it had hallucinogenic properties, and that was the Pearl Jam. And <laughs> you can tell that they're kind of chuckling in this interview. And so it gives you this indication. Here's these young guys in a band in Seattle in the early 90s, and they're just making shit up to tell people in interviews as to the, the band name. Then... A decade or so later in an interview, they're like, no, no, actually, that that story wasn't true. Um, we'd landed on the name Pearl, uh, you know, because of the the family tie to Vetter. Like, you know, I think Jeff Amen had thought of the the word Pearl. And then we we thought of Jam because of Neil Young's live shows and how, how he turned his songs into 15, 20-minute jams. And when I read that explanation, I was like, you guys, just... We all know. Stop with the stop with the charade. Stop with the lies. We know what it is. It's very simple. You're a bunch of bunch of smelly boys sitting around talking how funny it would be to name your band after Jizz. That's all it was. <laughs> so anyway, they could Pearl Jam, if you want to come after me and say, No, you're you're wrong. It's absolutely it was about Neil Young's jamming and uh and just the the word Pearl. But anyway, so that's that's it's my assumption as to what this was all about, but it doesn't matter now because Pearl Jam is a name that could be on the T-shirt of a teenager and you wouldn't give two thoughts about it. It's become just a um, a phrase in our lexicon that is normal because it's been around for 35 years or however long. So, no, not that long. Jesus, 30, not 35 years. It's been around since 1991. So we're talking about, oh God, that is getting close to 35 years. That's 31 years. Oh my God, you guys, time, time, <laughs> but so let's get into this, this album. And I, I'd mentioned the, the players, we've got them all together. Now we've got Eddie Vedder, we've got Stone Gossard and Mike McCready and Jeff Ament. And now we've got the, the challenge of the drummer. And at the time they have Dave Crusen, who is recording on the album with them. And he, right before the album even comes out, right after they finish recording, he is out of the band because he goes into rehab because he has a drinking problem. And he says later in interviews, he's like, they gave me plenty of chances. I just couldn't get my shit together and I had to get help. And so he's out of the band. Um, then we have day. Uh, no, no. During this time, they're touring and playing shows. They don't have a drummer yet in the band, 
But they they bring in their buddy, Matt Chamberlain, to come in and play with the band. And he's actually playing in the Alive video. And Matt Chamberlain is an incredible drummer. He he has been in the drum game forever and has played with some of the biggest uh, bands and talents out there. And the guy has an incredible career. And uh, really played with you know garbage and and so many other amazing artists along the way, um, so he's playing with them for a couple months and he uh, uh, doesn't want to commit to Pearl Jam, so he his he has his eyes set on G E Smith and the Saturday Night Live band, which he does, and so he that's that's going to be what he's going to do, so that's his vision for himself. So he's like, but I know a guy named Dave Abrazizi, and that'll be your your new drummer. And really, Dave Abrazizi is like. The, you know, he comes in right as, as 10 is releasing and he records with the band on the next two albums after that. And then in 1994, he gets fired. You know, they said at the time that it was amicable and it was fine, but he gets fired from the band because they're just, you know, interviews from both sides. It just clearly is one of those indications of here's this guy who came in a little late to the band, didn't have the same energy came from a different place, came from Texas and just had, you know, the band, uh, Jeff Ament and, and Eddie Vedder notoriously would say they just didn't have a, a good communication with him. You know, there was a lot of like disagreements and they didn't see eye to eye. And I think it's just one of those things, you know, when you just meet people that are just, there's nothing wrong with them or wrong with you. You just don't speak the same language. You just don't communicate the same way, or you just can't seem to find a way to, really see where they're coming from. And I think that while he brought a lot as a drummer, I think they just couldn't see eye to eye. They would say things to him in inter- I mean, they would say about him in interviews like, oh, he just really liked the rock star lifestyle and embraced it comfortably. And that made them uncomfortable. And then he would say things like, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. You know, they would they would say how much they hated the rock star lifestyle and then do these huge magazine covers. And so I don't know. I, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give the fair shake to both sides that probably it was a matter of just not seeing things the same way. So after uh, since we're only talking about ten, we're not gonna focus on you know after Abrazizi's out. Then we have Jack Irons who comes back for a short while, and then we have Matt Cameron for the rest of of um, Pearl Jam's history, pretty much. Um, anyway, focusing on ten, um, I wanted to get into this album in particular because there were obviously some breakout hits from this album that we all remember. And that is, you know, Alive. And other one was Even Flow. And then the other big, huge one was Jeremy. Now, some people might say songs like Black were big, but that song was never an official single. Um, It actually turned out that the band when they were planning on singles and releases and videos, they wouldn't allow the label to do, um, have them do a video for black. They were like, I think the stance was, you know, sometimes there's a song that shouldn't be focused on, you know, here's hit number one, here's hit number two. Like let's, let's give some credence to that. The song is supposed to mean something and it shouldn't just be a commercial video. It sounded like Eddie Vedder had some issues with, he didn't want to be remembered for music videos of his songs. He wanted to be remembered for the song, which I think is a little ironic because one of the most iconic things about Pearl Jam 10, honestly, and this is going to get a little heavy, I think, um, Jeremy. The song Jeremy 
and I, I knew that when I was going to do this album, that it would, that it would go this way a little bit. Um, it's 91. I'm a young teenager. And that song, the, the, the lyrics were written about a real life boy, a 16 year old boy who committed suicide in front of his classmates. Um, Eddie Vedder had seen the article. It happened in Richardson, Texas, I believe. And it was a real story. Real kid had done this. Um, and he wrote a song about it. Uh, Jeremy spoke in class today. And I'll, I'll never forget this because it was one of those songs that I heard the album. I think I had the cassette and then I saw the video and the video really, um, back then spells out the whole thing cinematically. You get to see what the song is about in, in cinematic form. Um, and actually there were two videos done of Jeremy. There was, a you know, right when they wanted to make a video, the label was like, no. And so this guy, um, shot a video of Pearl Jam's Jeremy that was just them kind of playing live and had some cool cinematic shots. But then finally the label was like, no, let's do a full fledged version. And so they do a full fledged version. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is when you're an adolescent and you're starting to explore things like this subject material and reading books that start to introduce these concepts of, of suicide and um, depression and loneliness and isolation. This was a, this for me was pretty big. And I'm, I'm actually going to say, um, I'm going to say there's a warning here on this podcast. If you're listening to this right now and this subject material is not something you're comfortable with, then I would just say, um, I'd turn it off if you don't want to, um, address this. I try to be very careful because especially on applications nowadays, like TikTok, you know, you reference to things like suicide with words like unalive, because they'll flag you or, or, you know, you'll get in trouble for talking about it. But this is my show and I'd like to talk about it because it was around this age that those thoughts really crept into my mind about, you know, taking, taking myself out of the equation. And I, I have always, always had a, a sadness that lurks inside of me um, for as long as I can remember. And I'm a very jolly, happy, positive person, but I think I always look at it like this. The level that you can experience joy and happiness, that is always matched on the other end of the spectrum. If you can go big and you can go broad and you can be comedic and funny, the darkness, the the, the propensity to get dark and go into those really depressing and awful places is very large because it's like you cleared the way up there. So you definitely cleared the way down below. I think that's why, uh, you know, people like Robin Williams and, and entertainers often struggle with it. Um, I've always struggled with it. And it was around this time that um, I was getting a lot of problems in, in school. I was getting a lot of tormenting by my peers and I used to fantasize about doing exactly what Jeremy did. I used to sit there in class and I used to think, I'm going to do, I'm going to make them all sorry. I'm going to make them all sorry for how much they made me hurt. And I used to think about writing a, a letter with the names of the people. Um, I even think they turned this into a Netflix series. <laughs> so this can't be that uncommon for teenagers to experience, but I, I would sit there and fantasize about listing out the names of the people that hurt me the most 
and then I would I would kill myself and then I would send it to the school and they would have to read it over the intercom. I mean, it's so fucking dramatic, but it was true. And to see a music video that was about a kid doing this for real was cathartic, painful, um, but it was important. It was it was really really important to see that and uh, and and understand it. And this is, you know, this is the early '90s. This is pre Columbine. You know, the norm back then wasn't kids shooting up schools or these terrible things that happen every other day here in this country. Back then, it was a little bit more internal. At least it felt like um, it felt so much more like I'm alone. And if you're alone in the world, you just channeled it through music. And that really our only thought, or at least seemed the most common thought was to, to, to take yourself out of the equation, not to take others with you, not to go into a place and just, I'm so upset and depressed and I'm miserable and I'm going to take everybody else out. That just didn't even, it didn't cross my mind. And, um, there's a million reasons why we can say it turned into that somewhere along the way. But I, I, I knew when I was going to talk about Pearl Jam's 10 that we'd get into this. Um, Eddie Vedder saw this article about this boy who had done it, and then he said also when he was growing up in his, um, in his, uh, in his school, somebody had also done this. And so he had, um, he had some experience with this happening. So um, I know that was some, some heavy stuff, but I, th- I think that right around this age, 12, 13, 14, um, a lot of things start to happen in your brain and in your body and some confusion you're developing, you're discovering that you feel different than others, or you think you feel different than others. You discover that, you know, you're, you know, all, all sorts of things can go through your mind at this age and art and music and cinema are such crucial factors in helping people feel a connection to I'm not alone in this world. I'm going to be okay. And I'm, I'm grateful for, um, how that song felt to me at the time. And, uh, it got me through it. And, and, you know, to this day, I still got the sadness. It's still in me all the time. I, 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 uh, I, yeah, I don't want to harp on this too much. (laughs) I don't want to harp on this too much. I, I I made the mistake recently of I went on a TikTok live stream shortly after uh, shortly after the lead singer of Black Dahlia Murder um, he he killed himself about a month or two ago and I that's one of my favorite metal bands and I went on a TikTok live late at night probably had a few drinks in me and I just sobbed like crazy you know I just sobbed so hard um, because when somebody does this and makes that decision and, and um, I think it's, you know, people always say you got to check on your friends and check on your happy friends. I think (laughs) there's really no rule to this. You got to just kind of make sure everybody in your life is doing okay. um, Including yourself. But um, I I just kind of fell apart when that, when I heard that um, news and being in a platform like I have now where I can go live and I can, talk to an audience it's it's a good thing but it's also it can be a little dangerous when you're when you're raw and you're vulnerable and you're letting yourself kind of bleed for the public like that um i i I, i've learned since that i should be i should be careful 
because that was definitely um, an emotional experience. But um, we spent a little time talking about suicide and depression, and I'm going to end that part, and we'll get back to the Pearl Jam stuff here. But I I, uh, I do want to encourage anybody that, um, you know, reach out the suicide prevention hotlines and reach out to friends um, and just take care of each other because it's important. Um, I'm happy still to be here 31 years after um, hearing songs like this and really identifying with them. Um, and I think I, 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 the only thing that gets me through um, always is my friends and the support systems that I've I've built in my life where people have, have thought, hey, maybe Jacob uh, – Maybe Jacob's pretending to be jolly a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Maybe he's just always trying to get a laugh. Um, and so I'm grateful for the people that have looked out for me. And I want to look out for you too. But all right. Now, if, you, <laughs> if you've turned down the episode during the heaviest thing I've ever talked about so far on the show, um, we're going to just wrap up here and, and finish on, on Pearl Jam's 10. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hope that was okay, guys. I knew I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I was like, if we're going to talk about this album and this song, um, let's close things out with some of the other interesting facts about the uh, about the album. Um, some fun things. The cover. Um, my buddy Josh, who's haunting season, and uh, he is the producer of this show here. I love him dearly. We went to go see Studio 666 uh, starring the Foo Fighters. And one of my favorite gags in that whole movie is a Pearl Jam high five. <laughs> they would go, Pearl Jam high five. And it's funny because if you've seen the cover of 10, that's what the band's doing. They're all putting their hands in the air, doing that together, you know, unity, um, which it's an iconic shot. It really is. But it was funny to see them kind of poke a little fun at the Pearl Jam high five. And uh, that cover they're standing in front of these giant Pearl Jam letters and you think, oh, they just superimposed this photograph in front of them. Well, interesting enough, no, those gigantic letters of Pearl Jam were real. Those were actually a wood cutout made by Jeff Ament because he was an artist and created stuff like that. So they're actually standing in front of giant Pearl Jam letters. So that's an interesting fact right there. Um, what are some other cool tidbits about the album? Um, they... They recorded it, and there was a there was a guy working on the mastering of the album, and he wanted to add some percussive elements to the song Oceans. And so he really thought, we need a little bit more here and there. And so he grabbed a peppermill shaker, and he grabbed drumsticks and hit a fire extinguisher. And he said that the only reason was he was so – he was recording this mastering stuff on a farm, and he was so far away from a place where he could get instruments. And he was like, I need some sound. I need some percussive sound in this song. Um, but it's not quite there. So I'm going to use these things. So in oceans, you can hear a pepper shaker, pepper mill shaker and uh, drumsticks on a fire extinguisher. So that's great. Um, another thing I really like about 10 is it opens up with that kind of groovy, um, you know, I don't know. It's like kind of bohemian sounding like it opens on that. And then right after the last song, it ends on that. And that was a lot of stuff that you experienced from, cassettes and albums that there was one side and then there was the next side it was always kind of bookended i think we miss a lot of that with streaming music nowadays um where you don't have these thematic touches as much because if everything's digested on a on a single track it's like um you know you you uh you don't have these links together and hidden tracks or like a song that begins and ends the same way so i always thought that was really cool and then um 
what were some other things? I feel like I had a few more notes in here that I wanted to cover um, before we get out of here. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I covered pretty much the whole the whole story. But um, Pearl Jam's 10 would really blow the doors down for this band, and they didn't think when they were recording it, by the way, that it was going to be the hit that it was. It's one of the biggest rock, selling, rock records of all time, like 13 times platinum, I think. I mean, huge. They said at the time, they thought if this thing sells 100,000 copies, that will enable us to tour. They were like, we're going to make this album so that we can get on the road and play live. They had no idea what it would do for their careers and due to the music scene. And at the time, um, Nirvana's Kurt Cobain was like, you know, called them like sellouts and said they were, you know, indie. But then I think they worked that out before Kurt died. But Kurt was just an angry guy anyway. Um but they, uh, the the band themselves, they do look back on ten, and they they have commented. They're like, eh, it's got a little too much reverb on it. It's a little too big. Uh, after this, they they really embraced more raw, um, less studio produced sounding albums. But uh, you can't deny that ten is a solid record, start to finish. Um, I I could put on ten, play it, you know, first song to last, and every single track on there is really good. Um, you know, the Vetter's voice is is very iconic. Um, I always really notice how much Jeff Ament, the bass player, he used, used a lot of fretless bass. And so you can really hear that in his sound. You can hear those little slides and boom, bop, bop. There's even a part on um, Release Me on the very end where I always hear it. It's like, it's like three minutes into the song. It's very soft and his finger accidentally hits a harmonic. I've always heard that one part. That's I miss that about... Um, some of the older albums where they didn't, they weren't weren't as concerned with everything sounding perfect and clean. It was like you could you could hear these little doop doop. I think it's at three minutes and twelve seconds. If you want to hear the harmonic that I'm talking about, um, but uh, yeah, my my one of my favorite songs in this album is probably Oceans um, Black. Those are incredible songs. The band recorded Even Flow, I think like fifty. 60 times and they c- couldn't get it right um, on the on the record when they were trying to put it together just couldn't seem to get it there um, the the version of a live that's on the album was actually from a previous de- demo that they just sweetened up because it they were like it just sounds great like that um, yeah there's just a lot of great guitar work on this Mike McCready is in interviews said he was really trying to imitate and pay homage to guitarists like Ace Freely and Stevie Ray Vaughan and you can definitely hear that on this record um, but Great album. If you never sat down and listened to Pearl Jam's 10 and you've only heard, you know, later albums or more recent stuff or whatever it is, you got to go back and listen to this one. This is the one that started it all. Um, but you guys, thank you for going on this journey with me here today for Waterproof Records and talking about Pearl Jam's 10. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal, um, iconic record from that time. And uh, it's definitely something that will always hold a special place in my heart. It's really uh, making me feel less alone um, as, a, as a teenager. So thank you again for the time. Um, make sure you tell your friends and your loved ones and your enemies to listen to this show. <laughs> I don't know. Just spread the word. Say, hey, you should go subscribe, support, share. Um, I probably should start push in the merch soon i have some waterproof records t-shirts and i even have a hat and mugs in my store but i should probably start sporting those and pushing them out there a little bit more you too could wear a waterproof records t-shirt and say i had it from the beginning 
Um, but uh, yeah, thank you guys. I couldn't do the show without your support. And thanks again to Believe for always letting me have a show here. I'm super grateful. Um, and Josh is the greatest. Um, we'll see you guys next time on Waterproof Records. Things are going to change. I can feel it. It just won't be that kind of body. I'm gonna-